BBC Five Live. Hello, it's us, that Mark Kermode and this Simon Mayo, and here comes our best of 2017, another hastily cobbled together end of year compilation special on BBC Radio 5 Live. And boy, have those cobblers been busy. It's been cobblers left, right, and centre, cobblers all over the place. What a load of cobblers. I knew you'd end up there eventually. How many times can we actually say cobblers before someone stops us? Many. Coming up, some of our favourite guests. Reviews you've asked to hear again. Another vaguely film-related nonsense. Including, in this first section, Emma Stone talking La La Land, reviews of Dunkirk, plus Kinaninunu John Wick Reeves. By the way, it's a recorded show, so obviously don't text, because if you do, it's a waste of time and money. Shall we start with a bit of Pirates of the Caribbean? Oh, yes, let's. The thing that's perhaps most gruelling about the film is that amidst all the east of the trident and east of the pearl and east of the thing and east of the what's it thing, there is dialogue that appears to have been written by the team who brought us Carry On Columbus. And just to demonstrate this, I put together a little competition called Is It Pirates of the Caribbean Salazar's Revenge or Is It Carry On Columbus? I will give you the line. Is this for for me? It's for you. It's for me, okay. For you, okay? Okay, Here we go, fine. A one-legged man with 18-pound balls? No wonder he walks funny. I'm going to say that's Pirates of the Caribbean. You would be right. Yes. He brings news of what the, Lisboni- what the Lisbonians are getting up to. I don't care what they get up to, as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the camels. Carry on, Columbus. Yes. Oh, you're very good at this. OK. I'm a horologist. There's no shame in that, madam. OK, I just can't gonna... believe you laughed at that joke. OK, I'm going to say that's carry on. No, that's parts of the okay, Caribbean. Yeah, Very good, OK. Uh, I'm off to Italy next week. Michelangelo wants me, to do, wants me to do up the ceiling. Well, mind you, hang on to something while you're up there. Carry on. Yeah, because it, obviously it's... Yeah. I'm not paying for that. Never say that to a woman. Uh, pirates. Shockingly. Shockingly, it is pirates. Um... I saw her ankles. You would have seen a whole lot more if you kept your cake holes shut. That's got to be carry on. No, that's Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) We are to be allies, considering where your left hand is. I'd say we're more than that. Pirates. Yes. Last one. We've just had a leak in the hold. Did you? Next time, do it over the side. That's quite funny. Pirates. No. Carry on, Columbus. Okay. What that demonstrates, I think, is that you could, you can literally mix up the lines from these two films, and it is impossible to tell which is which. Do we, do you, do we ever find the trumpet of Poseidon? <laughs> what is it? The trident of Poseidon. The trident of Poseidon. <laughs> I got a call back. What? Come on. <laughs> For what? For a TV show. The one that I was telling you about earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC. Yeah. Congratulations, that's incredible. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, I'll I'll, take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. And that's a clip from La La Land. I'm delighted to say Emma Stone is on the show. Emma, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm 
also fine. But then I haven't just won Golden Globes and that kind of thing. There must there must be a point. You must have got to a point where you think actually we don't really need to promote this movie anyway. We could just sit here and talk about the weather and food and all that kind of stuff. If you'd like to do that, I would love to do that with yes, you. Yes, but the people with you, they wouldn't like that. <laughs> I don't so. know if that's true. Do you think your work is done? I mean, you've been talking about this movie and the astonishing reception that it's had since August. You make a very good point. Yes. Is so is there anything is there anything anything if new? You, you can ask me any anything about anything at this point. Okay. You just I go am, ahead. I am gonna ask you about the film though. Okay, all right. If that's okay. If there's that's anything fine. else. Which was the toughest part? Probably the duet on the top of the hill. But also it was also my favorite scene because I think it's about six minutes long and we learned, you know, essentially to dance for that on a hilltop. But we had been rehearsing for four months by that point. So it was just really exciting to finally do it and get it. And we had one hour to get it because it was that magic hour. So the sun was setting. They reasoned that that would be about five takes per hour. So we had one hour on the first day, one hour on the second day. And I think he used the second take of the second day. Since you should talk about the fabled magic hour. The last time that was discussed on the program was when Leonardo DiCaprio was on, we were talking about The Revenant. And uh, and I mean, two more contrasting movies. I don't think you're going, <laughs> you're going to find. But does it feel special, or is that someone? Is that a cameraman who's going to be going? This is a special moment. Does it feel special from an acting point of view? Well, Magic Hour is really essentially dusk or dawn. You know, to be honest, the Revenant, Chivo, the cinematographer of the Revenant, was the same as on Birdman, and we did do some Magic Hour shots there too. It's just this. It is a real. Yeah, it feels like a very magical time of day. You know, that yeah. kind of sunset time is beautiful, but it what we were shooting on for La La Land, that sort of 35mm anamorphic film, it really picked up something beautiful, and now it's kind of funny to talk about because people think that's a green screen. Well, let's start with, with that, Hans Zimmer, because there's, um, there's a moment on the beach in which you get this kind of staccato, this kind of metronomic thing which starts to build tension. Okay, this is quite fairly early on in the film. And you think, okay, we're built, this is building tension. And Christopher Nolan talked about uh, being tension being the main thing. He's referred to because uh, his Wages of Fear, which of course was remade by Freakin' the Sorcerer, as this kind of exercising tension. And you hear this scogging, doing this thing, this kind of ticking thing. And you think, okay, this is building up to a thing. What's incredible about the film is that that then builds pretty much constantly for the rest of the movie. I think the score is an astonishing piece of work. These growls which match with the sounds of the boats, of the engines, of the bombs, of the boots on the ground. These elegiac suspensions that sort of, that strange gap between Badalamenti on the one hand and Elgar on the other hand. This uh, sort of sense of the whole thing having a mournful quality to it. Because although it is very, very tense, it is a mournful film. It is a film that is sombre and, and, uh, and seriousness. It is a film... Um, about, uh, you know, a victory being snatched from the jaws of defeat in a, in a very, very sort of strange way. And it is, as he said before, a British story. I mean, of course, it has been addressed before in cinema in various different versions, you know, whether it's Mr. Miniver or Dunkirk or, um, you know, or even recently, uh, Their Finest, with that, you know, somebody get Mr. Hilliard out of Dunkirk. Um, I think from a cinematic point of view, there is nobody working in cinema at the moment who is quite the the great champion of cinematic formats as uh, Christopher Nolan is, you know, shooting this in 
this, using these very, very large cameras, hats off to Hoyt van Hoytema, his uh, cinematographer. If you look at any of the behind the scenes footage of them lugging around these bulky, you know, large format cameras. So you're getting kind of, you know, sort of handheld dexterity and these periscope lenses used to capture the images in crystal clear format so that when you see them on the screen, you just go, it is virtual reality without the goggles. I want I mean, to get an IMAX camera in a Spitfire. In a Spitfire. How can we do that? So, for, I mean, and what's really impressive is that I, as you did, saw it in um, the BFI uh, IMAX 70mm. So there are, you know, so the, the, the screen stretching beyond the horizons of your field of vision. And um, as a cinematic spectacle, it is superb. But it's not just spectacle for the sake of spectacle. One of the things that is important to say about it is that it has this triptych narrative, three narratives, broadly speaking, land, sea, air. Um, and what it does is it also intertwines three time periods, one week, one day, one hour, which it interweaves throughout the film in a way which is every bit as complex and uh, dexterous and clever, although not self-consciously clever, as, you know, the time twists and reversals and, you know, lengthenings of Inception or of Interstellar or going back earlier into Chris Nolan's career, Memento, because he's always been fascinated by the idea of the flexibility of time. And although this is telling a fairly straightforward story and attempting very clearly not to want to play games with the audience, it does that thing that I've always said about Chris Nolan that I wrote about in a book some years ago and that I will stand by to this day. Christopher Nolan imagines that the audience is smart enough to keep up. And you know what? They are. This show is downloaded by half the population of the world. It is. We it is. the biggest population. The huge, yeah. huge population. Now, here's someone who has, and this is from Meredith. Dear doctors, my husband, Tarek, and I were on... Uh, Tarek, probably. And we're on an evening train from Newcastle to London last Friday. As we were... This is a, this is a wonderful moment. I wish I had been at the table with Tarek and Meredith. Yes. Okay. And no, you, I, you also. I will, but, but I don't know what, what you know what the thing is. From Newcastle to London last Friday, as we were settling into our seats in the quiet coach, mm -hmm. we began discussing what form of entertainment we'd brought with us to help pass the three-hour journey time. As we're both members of your church, we don't refer to your podcast as anything other than the podcast. The podcast. Very good. So I knew just what my husband meant when he said he'd hoped to download the podcast before our journey, but sadly it wasn't available yet. We began eagerly discussing who would be on the next episode of. The podcast. Hmm. It was Emma Stone last week for La La Land. What's coming out this week? I asked him. I think it's Matthew McConaughey for Sing, he replies. Without missing a beat, the man sat across the table from us, broke into a broad grin and said, Hello to Jason Isaacs. Are you members of the church? I squealed with delight, says Meredith. I'm American and prone to outbursts of enthusiasm. <laughs> and we traded... I love that. That's a national characteristic. <laughs> and we traded a few inside jokes back and forth before we had to settle in and follow the rules of the quiet coach. Okay. Whilst our new Wittitaney friend watched what we can only assume was a terrific movie on his large fruit-based device, and I read a film magazine, the man across the aisle answered a telephone call and began having a loud conversation. Again, with the impeccable timing, our new friend swiftly removed his headphones, leant across the aisle, gave the man a swift shushing, and informed Excellent. him that such behaviour was not appropriate in the quiet coach. These are my kind of people. Meredith says in capital letters, 
my hero. Usually when someone is babbling during a film, my fellow cinema goers and I just glare at them repeatedly until they're sufficiently shamed into silence, which rarely happens. But this man clearly knew he had the authority of the church supporting him in his quest to keep the quiet coach a peaceful place where wittertainees and non-believers alike can enjoy films on the small screen as they travel across the country. Based on a merely educated guess, says Meredith, I'm assuming this chap lives in London and is not our neighbour in Newcastle. But if we're wrong, we'd love to meet down the pub sometime to talk films with the only wittertainee we've ever met in the wild. Please <laughs> please give a was up to our train buddy and thank him for maintaining the integrity of the quiet coach. We hope he keeps up this charitable work of spreading the good word, good word about the coat, tinkety-tonk and so on. Says Meredith. That's great. That's really good. But someone just leans across. He has a nice little moment. He also knows when to back off and get on with his own thing. Very respect good. Respect the silence. Respect the space. Don't spend the whole journey chatting. That would be terrible. He's offered $7 million for your life. $7 million is a lot of money, Mr. Wick. So I guess you have a choice. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? Somebody, please, get this man a gun. Let's go. Your descent into hell begins here, Mr. Wick. Earl will guide you. Do be careful on your way down. Oh, and remember, you owe me. You don't want me owing you. And that's a clip from John Wick 2. I'm delighted to say that Keanu Reeves is our special guest. Keanu, how are you, sir? I'm good today. Good morning. Accounts payable. How may I help you? I'd like to open an account. Name on the account? John Wick. Just in case anyone missed John Wick episode one. Right. Where, just get us up to speed. So it's five days later, but what? where do we find him? Five days after what? He's uh, Okay, so he's an assassin. His wife's dead. Um, someone's, you know, his dead wife gives him a dog to help kind of ground him, have him a connection to the world. Um, as fate would have it, this young kid, this Russian kid, ends up uh, stealing my car, my 69 Mustang, and, you know, killing my dog. He doesn't know that I'm this mythical assassin, John Wick, who's trying to retire. So the first film, this kind of Old Testament John Wick character kind of comes out and uh, he goes after this kid, you know, seeking a kind of revenge. At the same time, his father's a Russian crime lord and uh, he starts sending people to kill me. Now, needless to say, I'm John Wick, so they don't, they don't make it. And then in the second film, <laughs> the film opens with me trying to get my car back. Um, but it turns out it's not my car that I want, it's the letter from my wife, a birthday card. Um, and hence begins the John Wick tone. Uh, some listeners' uh, questions, if I can. Uh, uh, Christopher George, listener Christopher, says, Is John Wick a hero or an anti-hero? Mmm. It's quantum, baby. It's both. Um, Until your perspective, right? So what, what you then I think you kind of have to decide that. And what's your perspective? Um, I'm quantum. I mean, I think... I think uh, you know what? I think he's heroic in the sense of the way he's fighting for his life. James Golding, uh, I think the Continental Hotel could get its own spin-off or TV series, which would be a first, actually, wouldn't it, for a hotel to get its own spin-off? But it's intriguing. A spin-off? That... Well, I know, but in Faulty Towers, what happened with them? Did they get a spin-off? I don't think they did. No? No. no. They should have. Would you be interested in setting that up? The Faulty Tower Continental. Yeah. John Wick. Where all the, it's like the failed assassins, the guys who can't really do it. Imagine. Who don't really want to be criminals. 
Imagine that just for a moment. Faulty Towers. John Cleese, the head of the kind of Faulty Tower underworld. Ian McShane would probably fit quite happily in both. There's the connection. Yeah, that's where he like you know it's, he goes there on the weekend. Hello. Whoa. <gasps> I hope I'm not disturbing you. Too late for that. This is an eviction notice. <laughs> You're living on land worth millions. They really don't want you here. It's a shame, if only they got to know me. Nah, now. So am I different to what you expected? You seem... Go on. Cleaner. <laughs> We're gonna help you, man. What am I, your cause of the month now? Every time someone threatens your pride, you puff up like an emotional porcupine. Never stops, does it? Last week we had uh, Brendan Gleeson came on the show to talk about Hampstead. Yes. And let's face it, when you have a film called Hampstead, you know what you're going to get. If you don't know what you're going to get, look at that poster and you know what you're going to get. Hampstead basically famous for its heath, its cemetery, its upmarket artisanal residence, and all of them are indeed present and correct in Hampstead. So the story is, uh, Brendan Gleeson is this kind of... Uh, enigmatic uh, beardy character who has been living on the heath on his own for quite some time in a in a a shack i think it's called by people who have been disparaging about it home as he calls it and he's living there he grows his own food he looks after and he bathes in the pond he gets in nobody's way he had as he says at one point he creates a very small footprint until some developers decide that they need to get rid of him so that they can develop and build some luxury homes meanwhile diane keaton uh, recently widowed and rather embittered by some things that have emerged about uh, how brilliant or not her home life may have been is struggling to uh, meet her bills in her overpriced uh, residence and uh, stumbles upon Brendan Gleeson's character and they start to form a friendship um it is very very twee uh, and it's rather like walking the streets of Hampstead and stop, stopping for, you know, a, a cake and an overpriced cup of tea. It is a film which makes Richard Curtis's Notting Hill look like something Noel Clarke would have rejected as being too streetwise and basically too tough and too much of an expose. It It is absolutely a Hessian jumper of a movie. Uh, I, I like Hessian jumpers. Okay, f- and fine. Which is also to say that it's not without a certain degree of preposterous charm. And much of that is to do with the fact that they are two very likeable uh, screen presences. I mean, you know, Diane Keaton, I've been a favourite of... Uh, Diane Keaton has been... A f- which way do you say it? That I like her rather than she likes me. I've never met them. You're one of her favourites? I'm one of her favourites. Yeah, wow. I've been one of Diane Keaton's favourite film critics for years. And, you know, Brendan Gleeson could basically read a phone book and, and would somehow manage to make it charming. There is in the back of it, as you said in your interview with Brendan Gleeson, the true story of Harry the Hermit. Is that right? Well, I, oh, I've forgotten his name. But, precisely. but it, it, they aren't telling his story. No, but they it are. is inspired yes, by exactly. the story of a man who lived on the heath. Yes, and, and, and who was involved in a... One case. Yeah, exactly. And so that is in the background. But by saying that this has any relation to reality is like saying, yeah, uh, so somewhere a, a while ago, a story happened, the coordinates of which might be per- peripherally gravitationally influencing it. There is no question that what we're watching here is not a real story. It is a rom-com with heaths and ponds and flowers and uh, all things nice. Even, even by rom-com standards, though, <laughs> its final 15 minutes is, is preposterous, to say the <laughs> yeah, least. exactly. Anyway. Okay, yeah. This is my um handyman. Some days your hands up and some days it falls. Just take what you can, cause you can. He's very special. 
completely transformed the way I look at life. It doesn't earn. I can point it the other way if you feel like you're being watched. We've got a thing here from Jeremy Murray, uh, who says, Dear Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White, I have enclosed a recording of the start of your January the 27th show, the Lager, Lager, Lager introduction, okay. at half speed right. to demonstrate the effect that I, I imagine Lucy had heard. OK. Lager, 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 lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega, mega, lager. I've had that in my head all day, non stop. All day. Because it's very exciting when it's very exciting. Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny. No. <laughs> Sorry. How can we get this out of your system? Because you did it last week. I've done, when it, he, done it for 20 years. When he comes in, he's going to want to punch you. Yeah. That's, well, again... <laughs> that is exactly the point. That is proved so brilliantly, Jeremy, by, by that clip. That is exactly so. The speed is slow, but the pitch is the, pitch is the same. That was definitely a drunk, drunk conversation. Uh, Jeremy says, I have also enclosed a half-speed version of you both at the start of the February the 3rd show, talking about the sound of the half-speed version <laughs> of the previous week. That would be a party you want to leave. <laughs> Straight away. <laughs> what? Why was Lucy listening to it at the wrong speed? I don't know. I don't <laughs> understand know. those devices. I didn't know you even could do that. <laughs> I didn't know you even could do that. <laughs> Really? I might be living with teenagers. <laughs> now, how do you do that? So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> how long? <laughs> Four months. Four months? Mm. Uh, five months, actually. She's right. I'm wrong. Attaboy. Better get used to saying that. <laughs> I, please, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. She's right. I'm wrong. <laughs> See? Does he have an off button? No. This is exhausting. I know, and I want to give you a tour. Can you, just like, go. unpack first? You want to unpack before the tour? So as you can see, it's, you know, Bonhomie turned up to turn, and in a way which is toe-curling and cringing. And also, everything else about the house seems to be strange. The, there is a, a black groundsman and a housekeeper, both of whom seem to be smiling in an oddly robotic or sort of, you know, really strange, peculiar way. And then, gradually, the story starts to reveal itself, to, uh, to unveil its, its hidden stories. 
The film, I thought, was a really, really smart satire on what's been referred to as post-racial America, a film in which it's not to do with dealing with rednecks, it's to do with dealing with the liberal uh, sort of, you know, elite and the underlying broiling themes of racial tension. Uh, it is very, very influenced by Ira Levin, who, of course, wrote Rosemary's Baby and The Stepford Wives. It starts out as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and it then moves to something which looks like it's going towards Red State or Green Room via Charles Burnett's To Sleep With Anger. It is, it has some of the humour of Rusty Kundiev's very underrated Tales from the Hood and also some of the the sheer nastiness in its themes of uh, Lars von Trier's Mandalay. It is uh, really you know, an enjoyable film, but also a very thought-provoking film. Inevitably, as Ira Levin himself discovered as a writer... As the plot reveals itself more and more and the things that are hidden, the things that are underneath the surface come to the surface, some of the thematic rewards tend to get dialed down. But he does understand, the director does understand that actually what you need, therefore, in the third act is to not skimp on cathartic. Spectacle, and indeed he doesn't. You just turned my microphone off I in the middle to, of that. So not skip on cathartic. Yeah, I wasn't coughing on cathartic spectacle, <laughs> which indeed he doesn't. I thought it was a really terrific piece of work. Sorry, I cut you off in your That's prime. Fine. But I think we got the gist. I think we, we got did. the gist. Yeah, the of gist it. was thumbs up. Mark's review of Get Out, ending part one of our Kermit and Mayo best of 2017. Still to come. Annette Benning and reviews of Paddington 2, Blade Runner 2049 and Captain Underpants. Tra-la-la. All that and more after the latest news on Five Live. Welcome back. It's Mark Kermit and Simon Mayer with what's been laughingly described as our best of 2017 right here on BBC Radio 5 Live. Remember not to text, please, because we're not really here. Coming up in this section, Riz Ahmed and reviews of Moonlight and King Arthur Daily is all right. But let's start with Mark on Monster Trucks. I press the gas. The throttle wire pulls these levers, which open these blinders. Right? Right? It's like the truck's a wheelchair for it. Uh, no, it's like it is an engine for my truck. Here's the plot. Monster trucks. They're trucks... Driven by monsters. In the, the monsters, right? They find the monsters come out of the, the water, and then the boy who's got a truck but needs the engine doesn't work, he puts the monster in the in the truck. And then it becomes monster truck. And then there's another monster, but another truck. What are we gonna do with him? What take the engine out of the put him in the monster trucks, plural. Monster trucks. Yes, I can. I mean that. literally that is, that must have been how the meeting went. Monster trucks. They're monsters in trucks. The thing is, that if you be... like cheese and you like peas, you'll love new squeezy cheesy peas. Monster trucks. Yeah, that could be quite good. Except it isn't. Okay, well, now you need to tell me why it isn't. Because it's pants. But why is it pants? Because it's badly written, oh. badly rendered. Bad, bad, everything about it is just... You sit there watching them going, What? Really? And then they, they keep they open up the bonnet, and then there's the monster, and he's got the steering wheel. That if he if he turns the steering wheel to the right, the monster knows. If he pushes the accelerator, the you just go. I'm sorry, just because you think this is for a family, and a, a, this is one of the the case with this movie was even before the movie re, was released, the studio were announcing the loss they were going to make on it because they knew it was pants. And uh, obviously they embargoed the, they embargoed the reviews because they knew that everyone else knew it was pants. 
I didn't know anything about it when I went in to see it, other than it was called Monster Trucks. And then when I realised it was about trucks with monsters in them, I thought, okay. <laughs> but it's a t- I thought when I saw that, it's a bit like Snakes on a Plane. You go, okay, it's telling me what it is. It could be very. Yeah, but Snakes stable. on a Plane was. I mean, Snakes on a Plane was kind. Of, it wasn't yeah. great, but it was kind of okay. And it was there was a couple of funny jokes in it, none of which can be repeated on the radio yeah. because they're all delivered by Samuel Jackson with the melon farming uh, Oedipal expletive. But Monster Trucks could be good. Isn't. Okay. I wish I'd been able to tell you that before it opened, but I couldn't. <laughs> Did that just happen? Oh, yeah, it did. <laughs> what you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? I think Moonlight yeah. is just magnificent. Where's you, Sharon? At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. It's one of those films. The first time I saw it, and I've seen it a couple of times now. The first time I saw it, I was really blown away by it because I didn't know what to expect. I knew that the subject matter, that it was a story of, you know, somebody coming of age in a tough neighborhood and, uh, you know, knew about the, the uh, Liberty City setting. And if you start to expect a certain kind of film and you get something which is so different, you get a triptych, a story which is told of uh, three separate individual sequences from a life in which the same character is played by three different actors the, cap, the chapters are named by the identities that he, is, that he assumes or he is given, so it's little Chiron and Black. And during the course of the film, you see this character grow and develop and change and be shaped by their environment, but also shape themselves. One of the questions that, that keeps uh, coming up is, you know, about identity. Who do you think you are? You have to decide who you are. You have to make yourself who you are at one point. Uh, when the character is called Black, he says, I built, I rebuilt myself from the ground up. And so the film is about identity. The first time I saw it, I was just really impressed by the the way in which uh, Barry Jenkins, who you know, made Medicine for Melancholy, had this extraordinary grasp of cinema and of storytelling and had taken this experimental drama project and turned it into something that was a really, you know, unbelievably accomplished uh, work. The second time I saw it, it just and I, you know, I, I know that we joke about how often I cry in movies, but it just reduced me to floods of tears in a really good way. There is a moment in it in which Sharon says, you know, um, sometimes I cry so much, I fear that I'll just turn into drops. And Kevin says, yeah, and flow out into the ocean. And of course, water is a really big part of the story. We had it in the clip; it was all a, a wash. Absolutely, and you hear the sound of the ocean is the first thing you hear. And there's the baptismal waters. There's the image of his face going into a sink full of ice water and coming out redefined, full of resolve. There is the the film itself, which is about a personality which is changing and yet immutable, like the ocean, the waves rising and falling, but the sea stays the same. This kind of timeless poetic quality. And immediately what you notice is that the way in which you're talking about them, the way in which one is that anyone's talking about the film, is not in terms of the, you know, the, the toughest of although it's absolutely about a tough life and about, you know, drug addiction and drug dealing and you know and, and, and abuse and bullying and all those things. 
But there is beauty in there. There is such beauty in it. As a piece of uh, cinema, um, I mean, for a start, the way in which it's shot, which is rich and textured and oversaturated, it's like a, a kind of waking dream, like a fever dream. It's a film which has a tactile quality in which you can, you know, you can breathe the air in, you can feel the life, you can feel the expectation. It's a film which merges between a kind of dream state and a reality without ever, I mean, you know, you, it's not a neo-realist film, but it's a film which absolutely has its feet and its hands in, you know, in a real and tangible ground. I genuinely think Moonlight is a breathtakingly beautiful and adventurous film. We've all got our stories, our lies, our secrets. They say the truth will always out. Oh, well, I hope not. We have a job for a start. People call me a snoop. And they call me a lot worse. And that's a clip from City of Tiny Lights. I'm delighted to say that Riz Ahmed, hit star, is uh, is with us on the show. Riz, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. You've had an astonishing few years. I wonder when you've been on, when you've done a Star Wars movie, it, it could be that every other movie that you work on for the rest of your life is smaller scale than that. I can't imagine that anything is bigger scale uh, than that. But do you, when you're doing a, a movie like this one, do you miss the time for rehearsal? Do you miss that time? Because you've said before about when you were doing Rogue One, being able to go in and do a line and then do it again and do it again and do it again and rehearse and change it and change it because that's the kind of person that you are. Presumably on this movie, you haven't got the time for anything like well, that. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because um, on the bigger movies, the budget goes towards hiring studios, equipment, the crew, the special effects, the art department, the costumes, the, the 12 cameras. Whereas on smaller films... The budget can go towards rehearsing. So we actually had a week um, of just rehearsals, which were invaluable. And, and the reason that that's a sensible investment on a small film is you can't go back and reshoot stuff. So when the cameras are up and you're there with the crew, that's expensive. So you get three shots at it. You get four takes max, maybe. Right. Whereas on the bigger films, you don't need to rehearse because they've got the budget to find that on the day which is why they've also got the budget to continually rewrite the scripts. So it's actually a completely different process. When you're doing those tiny films, they need to decide up front if you're going to be sitting on a black chair or a blue chair weeks in advance because then the art department can go to a charity shop and find the right blue chair and you'll have to go to three to get the right one. Whereas on the day, on a Star Wars movie, they can go, hey guys, you know what? I don't think you should be married. I think you should be siblings. Let's rewrite this, we'll scrap this, we'll shoot something up, we'll come back next to it next week. So it's it's a completely different creative process, almost as different as doing theatre and film. How much, now you've had a chance to sort of digest it all and see how it's all been received, how much has doing Star Wars and Jason Bourne together so so quickly in the public perception changed your life? I think it's really changed the awareness of my work in America. I think that's the kind of the biggest change it's made and that's kind of opened up more opportunities for me to work in different kinds of films in terms of how it's changed my life it hasn't changed my life massively i probably get recognized a little bit more but i still get the tube everywhere i still get the bus everywhere i guess every now and again there are people turning up with like star wars posters that they want me to sign 
and that's fine. And you've written and directed uh, before you. So I just wondered whether that is an area that you'd like to increasingly move towards getting your own you know if you're telling stories and want to tell different stories take control and write your own and then direct your own yeah um i I would love to i'd love to kind of uh explore that further but i'm really aware that i've got a lot to learn and more than anything i'm aware of kind of how much time and focus that takes and right now i don't want to do that with a split focus but you know what if you're telling me to do it then i will (laughs) what do we see you in next week after city of tiny lights in terms of what's coming out girls is on right now on TV, on HBO and Sky Atlantic. So that was a brilliant experience. Lena Dunham is an absolute genius. I can't praise her highly enough. Yeah, I've really never seen anything like it. Someone writing, directing, producing and starring in something who's able to give you such amazing, kind, sensitive, nuanced direction between each take and improvise completely new lines herself from one take to the next. It's mind-blowing. And really, kind of seeing her work has made me think, yeah, maybe I need to up my game a little bit before I write and direct, uh, you know, and try and write the theme tune and sing the theme tune. Uh, Riz, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Carton, Robin and I, we, uh, we wanted to ask you a question, didn't we, Robin? Can machines like that ventilator only work in hospitals? Well, it's just a machine, you know. You plug it in and it goes. Why do you ask? Robin's going to leave the hospital. Do you have any idea of the risks? Yes. Yes, I do. The risk is that he might die. Robin. I either go on living here. And that's a clip from Breathe. It stars Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy. Andrew, Claire, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Good All afternoon. Right, thank you. Very good, thank you. Yeah. It, it's very good to have you here. And it's been five years since you were on. Uh, Andrew. Oh goodness. 2012, that spider thing that you The spider did. thing. I love that you said the spider thing. That makes me happy. And Claire, you haven't been on the show before, so you're, so you're very welcome. Tell us, so we'll start with you. Tell us about Breathe, where you fit in the story, and then, and then we'll bring Andrew into it. Breathe is an amazing true story um, about Robin Cavendish, who um, contracted polio, and I play his wife, Diana Cavendish, and it's just about their story, really, about how they overcome lots of obstacles together and their relationship and their life and they do amazing amazing things they're pioneers really this is andy circus's debut as a as a director it's a very personal story for him you said before claire that you like to work with a director who works you hard um he told us a little bit about it when he came on to talk about his last film but just what kind of a director is he what was what was the set like with andy's director it was full of energy <clears throat> he's like um got boundless energy and really really wanted to make this film and I really felt like that he got every single last second out of every single day everybody who was working on the film you know we had so little time but everyone who was working on it was pushing themselves and going that extra mile and it really felt like everybody who made it put a lot of themselves in it and no no one could have done more than Andy to be honest he just he worked tirelessly to um to make it and he's got such a huge heart and is such a kind and caring and generous person anyway and that just all came across in him as a director but also he was incredibly 
trusting of me and Andrew and a lot of the time would say I've got to go over here and sort out 100 extras can you just what are you doing <laughs> sort your lives out and that you know we'd we'd do that and then you know he'd tell us if we were doing it wrong uh, what do we see you in next Claire do we see you in the crown series too is that you sure do yeah the next thing are you done on that i'm done yeah finish being the queen i have yeah and is that it are they i've heard that they're going to change the entire cast for series three oh yeah well unless they just change me and everyone else stays the same and i'd be deeply offended no yeah that's it we're all we're all done i mean i have no idea how they'll do it but they're all geniuses so i'm sure they'll do it amazingly and i know who's doing it next but i can't tell anyone um, but it's really good (laughs) <laughs> Who's doing it next? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Like, yeah. You weren't even doing, doing it subtly. It was like, so who's, who is doing it? <laughs> yeah, no. It's Judy Dench, isn't it? Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, yeah. It's no. got to be. I don't... I, I, I'm, That's it. Good, yeah. But you're, you're very close to actually telling me, aren't you? I know, it's awful. <laughs> I can't help it. Sam McMahon, this is an extraordinary, uh, outrageous breakage of our code. Okay. We've had lots of... Outrageous... Oh, this is the one that you wouldn't tell me about before yeah, because you to... wanted to save it up until I've it was on it up. Okay. It's horrible. Dear Logan Lucky and Lucky Logan, have you any advice for enforcing the code of conduct amongst your nearest and dearest? I recently saw the brilliant Dunkirk at our local Alpine cinema in Morzine, which is in France but made the fatal error of going with someone previously untested at public viewings. (laughs) He, a dear friend for many years, broke the code in such a way as to render me completely unable to broach the subject at the time or indeed after the fact. Good Lord. Hmm. He arrived... What is this going to be? ...during the opening scene... Okay, well, that's bad. ...and asked if he had time to get some popcorn. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Losing favour already. To my despair, he left before we could dissuade him, only to return with said popcorn, strike one. Mm -hmm. He then proceeded to open the popcorn, plastic bagged variety, loudly rustling the packaging and chomping, Mm -hmm. strike two. Bearing in mind, we're still... Strike three? Well, we're still in the opening scene. Well, he arrived late. He arrived late, he went out to get popcorn, comes back with Russell, that's strike three. To get worse. Yes, yes it does. Really? What's... But then as I leant over to politely reprimand him, he muttered to me that it was pretty hot in here, in italics, and proceeded to pull his trousers down and watch the rest of the film in his underpants. <laughs> what? <laughs> Clearly there was no... I mean... No. This is... Like, no. This is just strange because no. if you're very hot, you know, if the air con's wrong... You don't wrong, take your trousers off. But you, that's not like a natural no. reaction. You might say... You know, gentlemen, you, you know, keep I your shirts my, buttoned up or, or you take, know... You might take your jumper off or your shirt off maybe. But since when has taking your trousers off helped? Anyway. So he literally sat there <laughs> in his, in his pants <laughs> for the... eating popcorn, watching Dunkirk. Dunkirk. This is egregious. Um, I can't. I'm, I'm anyway I'm says lost well, Sam words. says I had no words <laughs> Lucky short didn't of, get arrested short of printing a copy of the code and posting it to him anonymously I'm at a loss do you have any advice also could I trouble you both for a big was up to my little sister Flora huge fan of the show who's recently started university in Amsterdam well we'll certainly do that that's the easy bit as as a, as far as your close friend of many years is concerned I, Sam 
I'd probably never want to see him again. Yeah, I'm I'm genuinely speechless. I mean, also, also such a bizarre... just, yes, I just can't understand it. I'm, I'm feeling a bit hot. I'll take my trousers yeah, off. Because I can, un- I understand why someone might eat popcorn loudly. Yes. I understand why yes. someone might do it. It's it still wrong. It's a thing. I understand why people might be late or they might take their shoes again, off. Again, it's a thing. But but if you're hot, I'd, I, oh, so hot. Do you know what? I'm just going to drop my trousers. Did you see everything you needed to see? I saw enough. I'm not sure how many people really thought that what the world needed was Guy Ritchie's take on the Arthurian legend, but now we have um, what I suppose can best be described as a sort of an origin story, a kind of superhero origin story of King Arthur, Sword and the Stone story. So it is a film which I found head-bangingly dull. And considering how much stuff was going on and considering how many stories within stories we were being told and considering how much CGI and, you know, general spectacular whiffle was being thrown at the screen, I was really surprised by how unengaging and lengthy I found it. Um, There is a thing that happens in the, the Sherlock Holmes movies, which is the kind of slow, quick, slow, almost sort of time slice uh, fight sequences in which uh, Robert Downey's character figures out he's going to do this and then he'll do that and then he'll do that and then he'll do that. And I, I think it worked really well. I remember thinking, wow, this you know, Guy Ritchie's got real style. He's kind of, he's, he's, he's figured out a way of doing this, of taking a tiny little bit of the Sherlock Holmes was about, you know, him being interested in, in wrestling and actually turning it into something which works really cinematically well. And credit where it's due... I think he made the, you know, he made all that sing. In the case of this, it just looks like you get the the fight sequences, but they just look like some kind of cranked up version of the football factory with fantasy elements thrown in. There is a moment when one of the lead characters says, "Just do your fruit caking job," and you think. I'm sorry. This line—I mean, I know that there's certain things in it that are meant to be funny, but I don't think this line was particularly meant to be funny. Obviously, incidentally, I was editing on the hoof. You know, he doesn't actually say that. You understood that? No, I, I did. Quite, you got that? I, okay. I did quite understand that. And uh, so, what happens is there's this constant thing about let me tell you how this is going to work or let me tell you a story in which so-and-so is going to do this and then that and then this happens and then it'd be a bit late, a bit way, a bit whoa, a bit woo, a bit and the, the and the and, and like every five minutes. Everything stops while somebody does some exposition. We're going to take the castle. And we're going in the front door. Josh, I need you to go to Londinium. Gather the lads. Where's the mage? In the manner of a bunch of Larry geezers planning out a job. It's going to go like this. He's going to go there. He's going to go there. He's going to go what? He's going to go where? He's going to what? And in the middle of all of that, there is a three-second cameo by Guy Ritchie himself which is the longest three seconds I've seen in a very long time on screen. And every time they start doing another one of, he's, you know, Goose Fat John is going to say to Blimey Charlie and... He's going to say, Arthur Daly's a little dodgy, mate. He is, he is, King he's Arthur. Underneath. He's all right, he's okay. All right, he? So he's done a bit of thieving. It's Have not a crime, up. is it? Well, it is technically a crime. That's what it is. It's, 
it's King Arthur Daily is all right. That's again the best the best gag in this review, and it wasn't even me. King Ar- well, you put it together. I didn't I'm, think. Oh, sorry, okay, I set it up, and you just King came. Arthur Daily. King Arthur. Daily. That's got to be the headline in your newspaper <laughs> column. Is it the Telegraph? <laughs> Thank you. But the other thing is, I found myself thinking. You know, the the other day when we were reviewing um, uh, Unlocked, and I was talking about Orlando Bloom's Cockney accent, and I said, "Where's Danny Dyer when you really need him?" And whilst I was watching this, I was thinking, where's John Borman when you really need him? Excalibur. Exca- I mean, I never liked Excalibur very much, but at least Excalibur had a sense of fantastical mystery. At least Excalibur had a sense of something otherworldly. I mean, yes, there was all that, you brought me back stuff, which was like, please stop doing that. I don't remember that bit. It's the Merlin's, but... In the case of this, I just I, a little bit of mystery, just a little bit of magic, just a, just a little bit of something that didn't look like a d- didn't look like an offcut from a Ramstein video, attempting to do an impression of the Battle of Helm's Deep, and didn't then whenever this plot ground down, I mean you go oh there's the massive snake from Harry Potter, there's the sword that's attempting to look like a lightsaber, there's Jude Law turning into Emperor Palpatine, but all it does is remind you of all the other fantasy franchises that you'd rather be watching. I thought it was stunningly dull. That's what all the fuss is about. Don't worry. You'll soon understand what all the fuss is about. Are you scared? I think I can manage. You should be scared. Whatever it takes to hunt him down. If I go down, you follow him. If he goes down, you follow me. You want him to think big? Give him something big to think about. You wanted the prophecy. This is your prophecy. The man who pulled sword from stone. Behold, your born king. That was Mark's review of King Arthur, which quite a few of you asked to hear again, and a few more didn't. Anyway, another hour of top 2017 movie highlights still to come, including... Amanda Iannucci, Margot Robbie and Donald Gleeson, Geostorm and My Desk Falling Apart. Golden moments. All All of them. And it's all coming up after the latest Five Live News. Welcome back. It's hour two of our lovingly crafted, exquisitely pieced together best of 2017. I think you're overselling it. Maybe. Still to come, Kristen Wiig... Steve Carell, Barry Jenkins and Annette Benning. Plus my reviews of The Florida Project and My Little Pony, which I still don't understand, and It. Hiya, Georgie. Don't start that again. <laughs> Remember not to text, it's all recorded. We begin this section with Mark on one of his favourite films of the year. It's Geostorm. So you got my message? Yeah, I got your message. It's, uh, it's worse than we thought. Whoever's doing this is using Touchboy to target the cities. Yeah, they're disguising their moves as malfunctions. They already killed the man who found out about this, and I don't think they're done. Yeah. This is my life's work, Max. Now, they said it was impossible, but we pulled it off, and it worked perfectly without fail, day after day, year after year. So what do people do with it? Turn it into a gun. 
Yes, that's right. They've weaponized the weather. It's basically Dalek's invasion of Earth meets Moonraker, or it's White House down rather than Olympus has fallen in space. Uh-huh. It's the kind of movie in which a Secret Service agent can say, you get the car, I'll get the president, and then can have a high-speed car chase driving backwards away from a massive fireball with a kidnapped president in the back seat whilst shooting at baddies. It is the kind of movie in which a global catastrophe, a geostorm, is conveniently probably going to happen only 90 minutes away, and there is a clock to tell you how soon it is before the whole world catches fire. It is the kind of film in which having a British accent will get you punched in the face, but the fact that Gerard Butler talks like Sean Connery in that weird sequence from The Untouchables, nobody cares. It's the kind of film in which the only way to stop everything from blowing up is to try turning everything off and then turning it on again. It's the kind of film in which global reach is demonstrated by, oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a turban. Oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a camel. Oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a bikini. Oh, dear, they've all caught fire or frozen or flooded or been vaporised in some other extreme weather event. It is the kind of film in which you fully expect to see a tornado full of sharks. In fact, they probably shot a tornado full of sharks and somehow it ended up on the cutting room floor. But the thing about it is this. The more I watched it... The, my brain w- was reeling. I mean, my my brain like started cowering in a corner of my head and not speaking to me. And the more that happened, I could feel myself getting stupider. I could actually feel myself getting dumber as I watched the film. And the dumber I got, the more I started to enjoy it. It takes stupid to a whole new level. May the record reflect that he was nearly one hour late. Yeah, sorry about that. I literally had to fly in from outer space. You mentioned Mahershala Ali, and when he gets, and he's the first character that we see, and when he gets out of the car, I'm thinking, I've seen you before, I've seen you before, wherever, and of course, it's uh, he, he plays the fixer in House of Cards, and I'm thinking, that's who you are. Okay, so now I've got him, but he that performance that he puts in is extraordinary, and no surprise that he's been he's been nominated because. It's not his story, but he is so important for that first Chiron. Exactly. And I think, too, uh, because he gives such, uh, I think, a full-body performance, I think he, his whole his whole essence uh, is in his performance of that character. I think he carries on into the second chapter, into the third chapter. His presence remains with our main character um, as it needs to. You know, I love that you mentioned Remy Danton on House of Cards. You know, Remy Danton is not considered a criminal, you know. In some ways, he's not even considered immoral. Uh, and yet, they but are... He's both of those. <laughs> ex- he's both of those, you know. And they are essentially the same man. But Juan, of course, when you first meet him, you think you know who this criminal is. And then, of course, Mahershala, over the course of that first chapter, uh, defies all expectations and I think rewrites uh, the story of what normally is considered a stereotype. Well, I just wonder if that's if that's the heart of the film, then, if that's what people were saying when they were saying to each other, have you seen Moonlight? That actually they thought they were going to see one film and they came out thinking, no, actually, that isn't what I was expecting to see and maybe I haven't seen that before. Exactly. And I think part of that has to do uh, with uh, the characters and the story and things like that. I think also uh, part of it has to do with if I tell you I'm, I'm going to show you a film about a poor black boy growing up in the projects with a mom addicted to crack cocaine, you know, who's struggling with his sexuality, you think of a very social realist sort of film. You know, an action film looks a certain way, a horror film looks a certain way, you know, a very social realist uh, depiction of life in the hood looks a certain way. 
our film, I think, in form uh, defies those categorizations. Um, I think it's a very unique experience. You mentioned the playwright who you uh, were working with on this, Terrell Alvin McCraney. How much this is part of this is your is is both of your story because you both grew up in the same. Uh, area. Yeah, exactly. But essentially, it's his it's his tale. Yeah, it, it is. I think uh, you know he first uh, wrote this in 2003. I think it was almost in a, in a way an attempt at writing a memoir. You know, this character that Mahershala plays Juan was a real person in Terrell's life, um, and then the character played by Naomi uh, Paula was based on his actual mom. Uh, when the piece came to me. I realized there was so much of my life and Terrell's life that unfolded pretty much exactly the same in the same space at the same time. And so it was a very organic and fluid process of blending those things uh, in a certain way, um, but still being respectful to the fact that the piece was semi-autobiographical Is for that- the playwright. So adapted from the much-loved book series, if you have, you know, young kids, and they, I imagine many of them will have grown up, certainly I have experience of, you know, one of my children who started reading because of the Captain Underpants books. So um, a story is, it's an uh, animation story, is two friends who are obsessed with drawing comic books. Uh, they're called George and Harold, voiced by Kevin Hart and Tom uh, Thomas Middleditch. They... Um, they they make these comics about this useless superhero called Captain Underpants who doesn't have any superpowers. And the joke being that because most superheroes look like they're wearing their underpants outside their clothes, let's make a, a superhero whose power is that he wears his underpants. Uh, accidentally, is that like John Major in the Steve Bell. It is, yeah. Is that kind of thing. Accidentally, through the use of a hypnosis ring that they find in the bottom of a cereal packet, they manage to transform their headmaster, um, who is always angry and grumpy, into Captain Underpants. Next thing they know, the evil Professor Poopy Pants, you can see where this is going, comes along to their school asking for a job. Now, where did I put that resume? Nope, not bad. Oh, this thing! Aha! Here we go! Hmm. Says here you're a science teacher? Not exactly. But you have teaching experience. Oh, no, I can't say that I do. Not even, like, babysitting? I would never sit on a baby. I'm getting a really good vibe about you. Now, hold on. Let me see that resume. It says here that you were a genius inventor. Man! Genius inventor. And then for the last few years, you've been in a very dark place, and your title was Revenge Seeker? Yeah, that's basically what I've been up to. But honestly, kid smiles brighten my heart and fill me with a joy-adjacent feeling. Well, you seem terrific. You're hired. What? Basically, because um, evil Professor Poopy Pants has found out through his life that everyone laughs at his name, he wants to stamp out laughter in the world by removing the Huffer-Gaffor Chuckley-Armalus, which is the part of the brain which is responsible for finding things funny, by making it smaller and smaller with a, with a ray. I have to say that during the course of Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, my Huffer-Gaffor Chuckley-Armalus appeared to get bigger and bigger because I just started laughing and I didn't stop the jokes are I mean it, it this is I'm not being funny but this is the most consistently funny film I've seen in a very long time just for sheer hit rate of laugh out loud gags and it's not oh you know isn't it cute it's it's toilet humor because as I said before the whole point is toilet humor is only funny if it's done properly I just loved it captain underpants is terrific if you have young kids and they want to see it 
great. Take the opportunity to go and see it because you will laugh and laugh and laugh and you will come out with a spring in your step thinking, well, that was a proper family film. It's 1979. I'm 55 years old. This is what my son believes in. These people with this hair and these clothes making these gestures, making these sounds. They don't know this is the end of punk. They don't know that Reagan's coming. It's impossible to imagine that kids will stop dreaming about nuclear war and have nightmares about the weather. It's impossible to imagine HIV, what will happen with skateboard tricks, the internet. And that's a clip from 20th Century Women. I'm delighted to say that its star, Annette Benning, is here in the studio. Hello, Annette. How are you? Hi, great. Thank you. Well, it's you. very nice to have you on the programme and very nice to have you in the UK. And what... This isn't going to be a difficult interview, or, and this isn't a difficult question, but what a fantastic film. I was smiling like an idiot when I came out. Um, thank you. <laughs> what, what was it about it that, that you liked? Well, OK, so this is... That's very neat. Now you've turned it back, that's so now right. you're interviewing your me. But, uh, OK, I'll... I'll tell you. So, well, it's basically your relationship with your son, which is great. So, and I just hint, I just told you the story. But before I went in, my youngest son was saying, can we come back and do some stuff? And I've got some friends and all this. And I was like, well, it's a little bit tricky and there's things and it's a bit complicated. I came out of your movie. I sent him a text saying, it's fine, whatever. Yes. <laughs> Bring them all back. It's fine. We can get out for pizzas. You know, yes. That. Because there is a warmth and generosity to the heart of this film, which is, which is very rare. And it's wise and it's funny. I realise you haven't said anything in this interview other than ask me <laughs> questions. So stop that. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So, Annette Benning, I'm taking back control of this interview. <laughs> Tell us about Dorothea and, uh, and, and your role at the heart of this film. Well, I, as you're speaking, it makes me think of Mike Mills, who wrote and directed it. And that's very much a description of him. He is a very warm-hearted and beautiful man, but he's really, he's really incisive and, and looks very carefully at things. He has a generous eye, but he doesn't suffer fools. He began this by really wanting to investigate his own mother, but he knew that this character, Dorothea, that I played would eventually not just be his mother, but that was his point of departure. And that whole kind of idea that we want to invest those that we are closest to, that we love the most, whether it's our children or our parents, we also have a longing to really know and understand and that there's always somewhat of a gulf between us, which is kind of a mystery. Why is that? And he wanted to really investigate his mom. So we talked at length about his mother. We're still talking about his mother in a good way. And um, that became the way we started. Um, He wanted me to watch Humphrey Bogart. He said not only did she love Humphrey Bogart and that character and that man that he was in those movies, but she wanted to be Humphrey Bogart. Really? Yes. So the Florida Project, so the film plays out over the summer break uh, in Florida, as the title says, outside the boundaries of Walt Disney World. And the title references the name under which Walt Disney first envisaged what was going to be the community of the future and then blossomed into Walt Disney World. 
The community, however, of the subject of the film are the residents of the lesser motels in the area of Kissimmee, which are basically beyond the boundaries of the expensive and incredibly successful theme parks. But these are hotels that are more like projects in the sort of welfare housing state. They have names like the Magic Castle and the Futureland, and they're painted purple and they're painted yellow. But all that paint can't cover over the fact that many of the people who are living there are long-term residents who are in the red, who are essentially, you know, they're struggling to make ends meet and struggling to pay the rent. It's an economic wasteland. But it's also, bizarrely enough, a kind of wonderland for the children who run wild around the film. The central, the central character is a six-year-old uh, Moni played by um, Brooklyn Kimberly Prince, whose mum, Hayley, uh, Bria Vinates, I think is how you pronounce it, I may be wrong, she's struggling to make ends meet. She's out of a job and she's basically doing whatever she can to pay the rent. So she's, she's hawking perfume to upmarket resort customers. She's stealing passes from wide-eyed tourists and more. Meanwhile, her daughter and her gang two, three of them at a time, are running riot around the motel to the dismay of Bobby, who is the motel manager played by Willem Dafoe. The film never soft pedals on the, the harsh reality or the economic reality that these families are living under. But one of the things that Sean Baker is an incredibly sort of humanist director in, the, you know, in the tradition of the Dardens or, you know, perhaps Ken Loach, is he absolutely inhabits the environments of his films. You never get the sense that he's a tourist in these environments. You, you get the sense that he's, he's right inside those environments. And what this film manages to do is to see the world through the eyes of the characters who are living in it. It uses um, a mixture of these, some street casting, they use some Instagram casting, they use some extensive audition process, all of which creates um, an ensemble cast that you completely believe in and into which more seasoned performers like Caleb Landry-Jones or like Willem Dafoe fit really perfectly. So there's no sort of jarring between those two things. And the film has real sadness and it has real heartbreak and it has real poignancy and it also has joy. It begins with celebration and, you know, celebrate good times. Come on, which seems to be an ironic thing, particularly since the use of the title, The Florida Project, is an ironic use of that Disney utopian community of the future idea. It's a film which is bursting with life. It's a film which has terrific uh, kids' performances, which says a lot about the way the director has worked with the kids. It is superbly shot. It has heart and soul to spare. There are things in it that will make you laugh, things in it that will make you cry. It's been called this year's Moonlight by some people, and I, I, I can see why. It's, it's really, it's really good. The creatures in the story are toys. They're toys, but the woods are real. And the size is wrong. The bear should be smaller. The size of a little brother. Bear. Yes. Yes, that's it. Blue, are you writing a book? I thought we were just having fun. We're writing a book and we're having fun. I didn't know you could do both at the same time. You don't usually look like you're having fun while you're writing. And that's a clip from Goodbye Christopher Robin. I'm delighted to say that it stars Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie are here. Margot, hello. Hello. Donald, how are you? I'm very good. How are you doing? It's very nice to see you. How was the premiere then? Was it all fun and fabulous? It was, it was actually a really special night because it was the first time I'd seen the film in its entirety and, you know, I was sitting next to Donald and we're kind of looking back on this little chapter of our lives suddenly on screen and 
hearing the the cinema kind of sniffle in unison as the tears flowed at the end really? was, was, was oddly satisfying. So you went to the premiere and stayed and watched it all. You didn't sneak mm-hmm. out the back straight away. No, no, I wanted to see. I hadn't. I'm, so I was the same as Margot. I, I also Carter Burwell did the music for it, and I'm a huge fan of his work. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. I wanted to see the film with that and um, yeah, and graded and everything, which I hadn't seen, and then just experience it with an audience. I think people if people find it hard to lie. Um, when they're just expressing themselves through either laughing or crying or deathly silence. And there were loads and loads of laughs, first of all, which really was a nice mm. kind of thing to find out that people did find it kind of charming in a funny way. And then, yeah, lots of tears at the end. So I'm happy. I, it, it'll probably be the last time I watch it for a while because you just self-loathing becomes too difficult to bear. Yeah. But um, it was sp- nice well, You spoke about this last time you were on the show was for Ex Machina and the self-loathing bit came up then yeah. about how you always thought you ruined films. Yeah. Did you feel you ruined this one? I have my issues with it, yeah, but I mean, like, I think that's just part of the learning experience, you know, like, and I, I think the film is strong enough, I think it's got something genuinely pure to say, I was part of a film called About Time, yeah, uh, Richard with, with film, Richard yeah. Curtis, that has really hung around, it's, it's one of those films where it's meant something to people, and it, like, it carried some weight yeah. that I think at the time a lot of people can be sniffy about, because it was a romantic comedy, or this is a period film. And if it matters to people, that's kind of the best thing you can do. And I, I, I can feel that this matters to people when they see it, which is lovely. Luke Doolin, greetings. My name is Luke. I am from Dublin and I am an MTL, FTW, etc. I am writing following Ant Green's correspondence last week in which Ant experienced the highly unlikely event of seeing a seafaring real-life Andy Circus whilst listening... A seafaring real Yeah, because they were on a ferry. OK, oh, I see, see. listening to the good man himself on your podcast. I, too, had a similar public transport-based what-are-the-odds experience a few weeks ago whilst listening to your podcast, this time on a train. There I was, enjoying a pleasant journey accompanied by a latte, a red velvet donut. Wow, imagine that. And the wonderful Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie on your show being interviewed by Simon. When, amongst the train's disembarkers at Malahide Station in North Dublin... This is full of detail. I see what I initially think is a striking doppelganger of the ubiquitous Mr Gleeson. Upon this figure getting closer, I realise that it is, in fact, the actual, Uriel Donald Gleeson. The fact that this unlikely audiovisual 3D Donald Gleeson experience occurred as I was listening to the part of the interview where Donald's current omnipresence was being discussed yeah. felt particularly fitting. Having seen Mother, which I loved, <laughs> earlier that week, I momentarily considered jumping off the train to catch him and attempt to engage in some heated thematic discussion, but decided against it, as he had alluded that since the movie's release, this had become something of an issue. I continued the journey in the hope that the stars may align twice and I might see Margot Robbie exiting at my stop. But unfortunately, this was not in the universe's plan. Her loss, though, I had saved her half the donut. Twilight Sparkle, and this is my home, Equestria. A land filled with magic, music, yeah, yeah, yeah. and most importantly, friendship. Life is perfect. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Watching the My Little Pony movie, I felt like one of those people. There was a load of colour, and there was some speaking and some noise and some songs, and there were unicorns of different colours, and there were, and I literally thought, I have got absolutely, 
absolutely no idea what any of this means. So um, after watching the film all the way through, I went to look at a, at a plot synopsis, okay? And I read the plot synopsis of what I had just seen. Yep. And I am even now m I'm more confused. I'll give the little highlights. The ponies of Equestria are having a friendship festival, first friendship, which is overseen by Princess Twilight Sparkle in Canterlot. The festivities are interrupt interrupted by a storm creature commanded by the broken-horned unicorn Tempest Shadow, right. who uses magical obsidian orbs to petrify Twilight's fellow princesses. Okay. There's then a bit about a whole load of cake. There's a joke about cake. There's a cake goes everywhere where it's not supposed to go. Pinky! You have visual on buttercream. Visual confirmed. Go for cleanup. And then... And then... There is some stuff with hippos, and then there's some fly around stuff, and then there's some colour, and then there's some talking, and then there's some more colour, and I have absolutely no idea what any of it meant. There will be impressions in the next few moments. So, uh, it... The new version of It is out. No, um, Stephen King's Doorstopper um, famously turned into a... was made for television. Um, Tommy Lee was directed and, of course, starring as Pennywise the Clown. The Dancing uh, Clown. Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Uh, Tim Curry. Hiya, Georgie. There you go. And, and that is actually... It's actually good, quite a good Tim it is, Curry, isn't it? It is very good. And this is something which is very uh, close to our hearts because both you and I over the years have discussed things which get under people's skin. And one of them is, you know, the idea of scary clowns. Chorophobia. Chorophobia. And, of course, the, the, you know, the classic scary clown is the scary clown in It, as played by Tim Curry in that miniseries. I mean, the, the, the miniseries itself is a little bit, that, you know, that, the, that TV version is a little bit up and down, but Tim Curry never puts a clown foot wrong. And that very first sequence in which you see, hiya, Georgie, when he's hiding in the storm drain is really, really properly creepy. The two things that it reminded me of most are The Goonies and Poltergeist. It's very, very similar in tone to uh, The Goonies and Poltergeist. The thing that really drives the film is that he has an a clear and very tangible affection for the kids. The kids are all on this sort of, you know, cusp. It's going to be a coming of age story. They're all individually, uh, you know, racked with fears and guilts and phobias. And they're all having to sort of face it, which is a sort of classic coming of age story. And he clearly likes them very much. And you can feel that energy of him liking those characters. And that gives the film this sort of driving power. One of the things people keep saying is, is it scary? Well, what it is, it's a horror adventure. And when I say Goonies and Poltergeist, I mean, particularly in the case of Poltergeist, Poltergeist is very much a sort of, you know, Spielbergian uh, fantasia, which absolutely has horrifying things in it. But it has that sort of, uh, you know, adventure feel. This with the scenes of kids on bicycles, the kids scenes of kids having a rock fight, the, you know, the outdoor stuff, which weirdly at some points also reminded me of things like Kings of Summer. It is as much a coming-of-age tale and as much a story about those friendships and about those, you know, the kind of misfits finding each other as it is about archetypal mythological horror in which it sort of manifests most clearly in the form of Pennywise. The difference with this version is that this particular Pennywise has got this, this very, almost like a kind of babyish head, almost like a sort of big malevolent baby head and these kind of Bugs Bunny teeth and speaks with this lilting broken chime kind of voice this is absolutely a film for people who, who who like poltergeist who like the goonies who like stand by me who like 
all of those kind of youthful adventure stories, but told with this kind of, you know, this very sort of firm streak of horror with a great inflection of uh, Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street. Personally, I could have, I could have had it being a little bit more scary, but I really enjoyed it. I really liked its spirit. It's only the early part of the story. We still have the adult part of the story to do. This is chapter one. So, you know, we have more to come, hopefully. Oh, that's, that, that's happening. And on the, the, on the strength of how enthusiastic people seem to be about seeing this new version, I have no doubt that that is happening. Mark's review of It ending the penultimate section of our Como de Mayo Best of 2017. Still to come, Amanda Iannucci and Paddington 2. That's after the Five Live News. Welcome back. It's Mark Kermit and Simon Mayo here with some of the film reviews and guests you've asked to hear again in our well-titled Best of 2017 on BBC Radio 5 Live. In our final half hour. Amanda Iannucci, Kristen Wiig and Steve Carell, and I put it off for as long as I could, but in the end I was compelled to watch it, the Emoji Movie. Let's start with something calming. It's Mark doing Transformers 5. I want to stay and I want to fight them. The operation is over. We're not giving up, okay? Without sacrifice, there can be no victory. Here we go again. We start off with the new movie in a kind of... Uh, in it, I know I mentioned Monty Python in that before, but it is a sort of Python-esque Arthurian beginning with uh, this sozzled Merlin, Sonny Tucci, um, who is going off to a mysterious cave in order to get some help for his uh, embattled kin. And you do half expect somebody to come out of the cave and go, Fetche la vache! You know, we are French, you English pig dog types. But no, they don't. What they do is that they provide a transformery sort of dragon, okay? Then we come forward to the present future, the, 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 the whenever it is. Incidentally, when I'm doing this plot synopsis, if you think it doesn't make any sense, that's because I'm just trying to scramble together the bits of a... It's like standing in a junkyard that's been surrounded by the wreckage of a car and you're trying to explain that, that bit connected to that and that was the there was a carburetor over there and whatever. So sort of present future America um, where Transformers are outlawed now, except in some places where they're not, and uh, Marky Mark is helping to hide them in junkyards. Meanwhile, in England, Sir Anthony Hopkins is living with a robot called uh, Cogman, I think, who is clearly ripped off C-3PO. So clearly ripped off C-3PO that at one point Mark Wahlberg says to him, Oi, C-3PO rip off, because Michael Bay's idea of funny is to do something profoundly stupid and then point at it and say it out loud. Mm-hmm. I, I, one thing I do stand by, in, well, many things I stand by in that thing that you did there, is that Michael Bay does a lot of things, but be funny is generally not one of them. I mean, he does, he is about as funny as the workings of an air filter system. Anyway, somewhere else, uh, Vivian Wembley, who is an Oxford history professor, is explaining to people that Arthurian legends are just legends, and she's doing this while dressed as a stripper, and we know that she's dressed as a stripper because at some point Mark Wahlberg says you're wearing a stripper dress once again Michael Bay do something stupid but then get somebody to point at it and say it out loud and that makes it funny Mm. so out in space an alien queen is doing something with Optimus Prime to turn him into a nemesis and then he'll have to come back to earth to bring about the end of the world which Sir Anthony Hopkins is very concerned about Meanwhile, back on Earth, military types are running around doing military-type things in short bursty bursts that don't make any sense but have got some sort of 
you know, military bursty things in them. And then John Turturro is on the phone uh, talking uh, from somewhere else, trying to cut a deal because he wants to become part of a sort of Dan Brown organisation. And a group of men with stern haircuts are looking sternly at screens and saying stern things in a stern manner. Surely the only way that inevitable disaster can be averted is for Sir Anthony Hopkins to get Marky Mark Wahlberg and the history professor dressed as a stripper together in the same room and explain the plot to them before Michael Bay decides to blow everything up. So overall, I mean, it's terrible. It is really, really ineptly poor, you know, filmmaking. It's crashingly loud, mind-bendingly dull, utterly without coherence and purpose other than as a money-making thing. But it is less obnoxious than the previous Transformers films. It is by no means the worst. And as opposed to making me angry, it just made me sleepy and tired. Can you just do do a word on the casting, Amanda? Because, uh, I mean, uniformly brilliant performances. And our own and our very own Jason Isaacs. Yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) Who kind of has his own entrance. Halfway through the film. He does. And he plays Zukov, who was... Zukov, head of the Soviet army. Great war hero. So who he, he, he felt he could just tell Stalin what to do. Uh, the only one, really. Uh, and, um, and Jason plays Zukov with a Yorkshire accent. Yes. Which he's described himself as sounding a little bit Brian Glover in Kez. Yes, a little bit. I, a, a, smack, a smattering of Sean Bean as well. Though, it's, I yeah, I mean, I th- I, it's a fant- I mean, it is a fantastic entrance because when he comes in, because every, everybody is terrified of saying the wrong thing, yeah, except, except for him. <laughs> he just genuinely doesn't care. Let's play, a clip. Let's play a clip just to illustrate some of the points that we're making here. Uh, certainly the accents uh, point rather nicely. So we've got Steve Buscemi as Nikita Khrushchev and Jason as, uh, is it Georgi Zukov or Georgi Zukov? Uh, we had long debates about that, and I left it up to them to decide. <laughs> Zukov. 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 Uh, we've replaced all the swearing, and there's lots of it, with, <laughs> with bird songs. So there's as much bird song as there is acting. Like, I was the one who put the trains back on. I know. Comrades. I'll punch into a sticky pulp. Uh, thank you. Thinking. Oh, I don't know, okay, but I did it. And I... I really need your help. To do what? The body's piling up in the streets a bit late, isn't it? What if we blame this on someone Wait. who's out of control? Nicky, be very careful what you say next. Who? Beria. I'm going to have to report this conversation. Threatening to do harm or obstruct any member of the Presidium in the process of looking at your face. <laughs> <laughs> Nikita Khrushchev. You balls like Kremlin dogs, right? Stop. Be serious. Are you in? I'm in. I'm in. Thinks he can take on the Red Army? Germany. I think I can take a flesh-lumping waistcoat. No, it's got to be tomorrow. Tomorrow? Sorry, you're busy washing your hair or what? I'm going to have to go and see this film again. Okay. It sounds a bit like Tweet of the Day there. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what it sounds like whenever he and I start discussing politics. So it's the sequel to Blade Runner. It felt like a film which was made with an absolute love and respect for the original, but also the bravery to go somewhere else. I did an on-stage with uh, Ridley Scott and Denis Villeneuve before I had seen Blade Runner 2049 when they were showing an IMAX presentation of Blade Runner, and at the end of it they were going to show 10 minutes of 2049, which I didn't want to see because I wanted to see the whole film. 
and there was a lovely uh, discussion between the two of them. I mean, as anyone who knows Blade Runner will know, there is a central enigma in Blade Runner about the nature of Decker, the nature of the central character. And what's really lovely is that although... What do you mean by the nature? Well, I, I don't... Okay, about, about, well, I mean exactly that. That's as much as I'm going to say. I know it sounds really ridiculous to talk about plot spoilers when you're talking about a film that is that old. But the, the central character of Deckard, his nature, like what he is, what, he, you know, what his true nature is, is, is an enigma in, this, in the original film. Ridley Scott is very clear about how it actually works out. He says, no, no, this is what he is. He is this thing. And Denis Villeneuve says, well, actually, maybe, but maybe he isn't. And people have now, to this day, battle. I mean, you know there was an interview recently in which Ridley Scott and uh, Harrison Ford were arguing about the fact that they never quite agreed as to what Deckard was. In fact, when I did Blade Runner 2049, we got Hampton Fancher and, uh, and David Webby was together, and we said, OK, who first came up with the idea that Deckard may not be what you expect? And, do you have to speak in this riddle when it's 30 years ago? You know what? I'm just trying to tread very, very carefully. But anyway, it doesn't matter. What matters is this. That there is an enigma at the centre of the original Blade Runner. And what Blade Runner 2049 does is take that enigma, explore it, unpack it, and preserve it all at the same time. It is a film which has absolutely the same key core concerns as the original film. But it also has its own vision of where to take those key core concerns that may or may not be in tune with how Ridley Scott reads Blade Runner. It is a film of quite breathtaking visual beauty, but more importantly, and I almost feel like weeping when I say this, it is a film that not only doesn't let Blade Runner down, but makes you feel like that dedication that you had to it for all those years is shared by the person that made this film. I mean, the second time round, I just, I literally just sat there and went, wow. You didn't weep. I, you know, without wish, wishing to refer to, you know, Rutger Hauer's final speech, I kind of did a little bit, but more out of relief and, and joy and just because if you're a genre fan and if you if you love science fiction and if you love the world building science fiction that Ridley Scott was doing with Blade Runner it's just great to see a film that goes you know what I love that too and actually here's the key thing if you saw Arrival and you know how Denis Villeneuve approached the idea of science fiction in Arrival he just did it again but with a Blade Runner sequel How is my brother finding a wife like you when he is so bald? <laughs> and that is a clip from Despicable Me 3. It stars Steve Carell and Kristen Wiig. And I'm laughing only because I'm slightly confused because when Steve and Kristen just came into the room, Steve calls Kristen Christian 
bail. <laughs> and I'm worried that I'm going to make a mess up. But anyway, Kristen and Steve, hello. 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 Good morning. Is that like a, a, a thing that you do? Steve, just to well, inadvertently, it's yes. a thing that I do. <laughs> it's not a it's not a planned joke. It's just I I worked with Christian Bale a year or two ago, and I guess I have Christian Bale on the mind. We all do. And we, and Kristen Wiig <laughs> looks a lot like Christian Bale. Yeah. I've so been told that it's hard. You've done six movies with one of them. I have. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the Kristen. That's right. We had um, uh, Tom Hanks was on the show a while back talking about doing Woody in Toy Story over a whole bunch of years, 20 uh, years, and how voices change over the years. And he said it's enormously to his advantage for that, that he doesn't smoke and he drinks a little bit, but not not very much. So his voice hasn't changed very much. So uh, how, you've been associated with these pictures for a, a while, particularly, uh, Steve. Does, when you when you hear the original work, is your is your voice different at all? Have you, have well, you changed? Well, I, I smoke and drink all the time. <laughs> I'm actually smoking and drinking right now. That's, That's so right. Early. Along so. with Christian Bale here, who's got some Jack Daniels and 20 silk cut. <laughs> uh, I don't so, think the voice has changed. But you know what? The character has matured. And I'm taking him on a journey. On this, in this third episode, no, he hasn't. Uh, he's, he's changed internally. But uh, no, I don't think the voice is really change the voice is such a simple stupid silly thing it's not when people ask about how i developed the voice i just did a voice that made my kids laugh and that's the one i used and there was no country attached to it it, it was and and that's what makes it so easy too because the bar is i set the bar very low for myself with this voice so it's easy. Happiness. What's that? Secret to happiness. It is. Set the bar low at all yeah. times. Lower expectations, job satisfaction guaranteed. Yeah. That's <laughs> been my motto. So if it makes your kids laugh, then that's fine. Yes. And have they seen this? They have not seen the third one yet. Why not? Um, well, I don't see my kids too often. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, it, has, it hadn't been completed. And uh, we wanted to see, as a family, we wanted to see the final product. Because you can see earlier versions that have the incomplete animation and, and little bits where, where the characters don't really move properly. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. Kind of funny. Um, and it's always better to see the, the finished product. Also, when we see it at the premiere, it, the theater is usually filled with kids. Yeah. And that's just the best audience to watch this movie with. Because watching kids crack up and hearing them laugh is... it's so worth it. And I know that everything is recorded separately because that's the way it always happens. Yeah. But I did wonder with you two, because you spark off each other so well and because you've done six movies together and because you clearly get on, whether there is, whether they ever think that maybe there's some potential, let's just put them in a room. I wish they would and, that. You know, and put them in the same place and let them work this script. I would love that. I think they hear us doing press and they're scared <laughs> <laughs> that we'll just start talking and crazy voices or something we'd never get any work done <laughs> is it the drinking and the smoking that yeah. you think would would get in the way and christian of that? bale's just so distracting in the booth when he's with us <laughs> you know the problem i think would be laughing yeah because when we did anchorman together <laughs> the scenes the scenes that we had together were excruciating because i couldn't stop laughing we, we couldn't stop and at a certain point the director gets fed up with you because you're not actually doing any of the dialogue because you're just being too silly with each other so yeah. maybe that's 
what they're worried about. That rapport is something which clearly people love. Outside of uh, Despicable Me and other movies, are there plans to collaborate again? I'm no, assuming never. The, that's never going to happen. <laughs> I was just about to say, I hope so. <laughs> what? Send her an emoji. Okay, be cool. Welcome to the world inside your phone. That's my home. Textopolis. Here, each of us does one thing, and we have to nail it every time. The Christmas tree just has to stand there, all festive. Merry Christmas! It's still September, Tim. Box office top ten this week, it starts at number 31. And then does. it goes to... Oh, yes. At number 31, the Emoji Movie. Now, I'm just mentioning this because it's also out as a DVD. Yes, it's out on Monday. Week, but it's also in the chart, and you have watched it. Yes. And I was going to watch it, but I just couldn't get it. You wimped out. Well, I tried, but... You, know, you didn't try that hard, tried, and let's file, be honest. The file just wouldn't play. And I, I therefore tried for both of us, and I've now seen the Emoji Movie. Good. And a lot of people had written in to say, well, if you do the best and worst of the year list at the end, it's not going to be worth anything if you haven't seen the Emoji Movie. And then you and I made a pact that we would go and see it together, and then yeah. you wimped out and let me down. The pact. Basically, you know, lightweight. Lightweight, mm-hmm. see, that's, that's the word I was Yes, but I had 90 minutes of relaxation yeah. and joy in my life. I mean, I, it's, it's really terrible. I did go into it thinking, because I've had a couple of emails from people saying, look, it's not, you know, it's not as terrible as you think, and this is every bit as terrible as I think. It is awful. It is, the best way of describing it is it's basically inside out as remade by a poo. And uh, Patrick Stewart does play a poo in it. Meet poop. It's showtime. And the poo jokes are... I mean, I'm somebody who actually finds flatulent humour generally funny, but I not once did I titter or smirk or get involved. I mean, it's 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 cheap and nasty and tacky and you know grotesquely uh, product placed and, and, and appalling. But the the most the most extraordinary thing about it in it is that James Corden, who plays the high five emoji, is the very worst I have ever. I mean, it was almost like he'd gone out of his way to make every line as blisteringly unfunny as possible. Come on, man, it's high five. You know me, I'm a favourite. It's got to be some sort of mistake. I mean, look at me, I'm an attractive hand giving a high five. This bum, he's a knucklehead, literally. Look at him, I can look like that. Oh, ow, cramp, huge mistake. I mean, the film itself is like some kind of, you know, toxic fume that pr- that paralyses your chest and prevents you having any chuckling reaction. I mean, he's really, really poor. But James Corden is unbelievable. And I thought when there was all that stuff about James Corden, you know, embracing Sean Spicer, I thought his career moves go, that was one of the worst. But no, 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 I hadn't seen the Emoji movie by then. It's terrible. It's witless. It's massively out of time. I mean, I know it's only just come out of the charts, but there are jokes in it about, you know, memes and things like that, 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 that are like years and years out. Even to an old crusty like me, I'm thinking even I know those jokes are way out of date. It doesn't make any sense. Again, people say, well, you know, why does it make any sense? It's a story about emojis living in a phone. Comedy makes sense when it has a structure and it obeys its own rules. Inside Out is a pretty near perfect movie because it obeys its own rules. The emoji movie doesn't have any rules because it doesn't understand. Clearly made by people who don't understand how either how phones work or how human beings work. It is a it's it's a horrible experience. I am. I feel quite. I feel quite depressed at having, but at least I feel like I've got through it now. I have seen it. It's every bit as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. And James Corden, career low. In terms of bad choices, Patrick Stewart playing the poo got off lightly. <laughs> We're number two. 
We're number two. It's nice that because of us, Rosa, although she was a little bit scared, she wasn't smashed out of her head. So, <laughs> have you ever been on a plane that's done that thing about going down? Oi, shit! What are you doing I over there? I didn't. What touch are it. you doing? I did not touch it. Okay, I didn't touch it. My legs were nowhere listen, near it. Right? Listen, listen, listen. Stop. Rose is trying to fly. Rose, look, look. There's a... talk to me. Don't talk to them. Rose doesn't want any sudden noises. This is nothing to do. My feet were nowhere near that. The desk is throwing itself apart. That is nothing. What has happened? Right. I, it's the it's the monster. The Dalek monster is breaking out of the, this wretched thing again. Look, is well, I'm not putting it back. Okay. I'm putting it's, it over the, it's a very very small piece of wood with a. It is not a very small piece with of a grate. It is a large piece of wood with a grate on it and a thing. Rose, I can only apologise. This is like the worst possible thing for Rose. She's very nervous. And There's now a big hole in the desk, which has got Mark wires that look dangerous. Rose. I can only apologise for the loud noises of collapsing machinery and high-risk and injured presenter. Not. You're right. Can, can you actually even continue? I actually even can. Oh, Mr. Gruber, it's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London and never had the chance. But if she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. When you hear Ben Whishaw voicing that character, and it's weird to say voicing that character because one of the things about the Paddington movies, both of them, is that the CG is done so well, the physical and the digital knit together so well that you don't actually think of Paddington as a CG creation. I mean, I it wasn't until after I came out of the film that I thought, oh, wasn't the digital stuff done well? I didn't think it whilst I was doing the thing, because I just thought, it's fine, it's a talking bear, I know him, that's absolutely fine. And I do think Ben Wishaw's voice is perfect. It's, there's something about the way in which he slightly emphasises his, his consonants, his T's and D's. It sounds there's some, there's slightly childish, but also kind of, you know... Um, wisdom beyond the there is something about that voice it's lyrical and lilting and it has just the right amount of, it's exactly the right voice for a bear whose primary weapon would be a hard stare so i think that's a brilliant piece of casting second thing is in terms of brilliant casting take a bow hugh grant we were and you ha we don't say that very often well funnily enough we did in florence foster jenkins and in florence foster jenkins hugh grant I, I said at the time i thought it was a career best role for him i thought he was brilliant and he played a character who was a sort of wannabe shakespearean uh, actor who's who just wasn't as good as he thought he was and, and now essentially become somebody whose career was looking after florence foster jenkins in the case of this he plays phoenix buchanan who is a wannabe actor who's nothing like as good as he thinks he is whose career has been reduced to advertising dog food and uh, opening uh, steam fairs. And Hugh Grant is really good and really funny. And I have to confess that I had heard from people, they said, oh, Paddington 2 is, you know, it, 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 it does the gist, it's every bit as funny. And I thought, yeah, it's not going to be, is it? And I was really, you know, I was delighted by it. I laughed and I was moved. And the, the action sequences are actiony and the danger bits are quite dangerous and you know lovely moments like you know sally potter when she sally, potter, sally hawkins when she sally potter sally potter was in it because she just finished working with toby jones you know it's it's the little asides it's the 
it's the fully rounded ensemble cast. You know, Sanjeev, of course, you know, makes a... A wonderful appearance. A wonderful appearance. I think a lot of the film revolves around, around Sanjeev. Sanjeev. Yes, it does. But there's also, there's a kind of, it's a wonderful life quality to it because the story is, you know, the little things that somebody does that are decent make the world a more decent place. And if you take one decent person out of an equation, what does it leave behind? And there was definitely, and this must be deliberate, there was definitely, I thought, in one of the sequences, a nod toward It's a Wonderful Life, which is essentially that same story of just the decency of one person, or in this particular case, one bear, can make a, a difference to a whole neighbourhood. It's almost, it is like a therapy, the film, because I did think this isn't, it, it, they can't make it as joyful as the first one. You know, we'll be saying, well... It's okay, but the you know it's not a patch on the first one, and actually it is a patch on the first one, and it is, <laughs> and you will come out of it feeling better than you went in. Yeah, you'll have a little skip in your step, and your hat will be at a jaunty angle, and you'll go, you know what, the world is a better place. Yeah, you're where there's a bear on your roof. The hunt begins. Mm-hmm. Mysterious things have been happening all over town. We're going to need a foolproof plan. Mark's review of Paddington 2, and now we all feel warm and fuzzy. Thank you, Mark, for making us feel like that. It won't last. Hmm. And that's it for our Best of 2017, which has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thanks for listening. See you in 2018.